This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. Do you know the difference between warp drive and impulse power? Do you have an opinion over which design of the USS Enterprise was the best? Do you remember when Klingons didn't have ridges on their foreheads? If you answered yes to those questions, then chances are you're a Star Trek fan. I would like to invite you to listen to my new podcast, The Prime Direction. For 50 years, Star Trek has been affecting people from all walks of life, teaching life lessons and changing the lives of people all over the world. The Prime Direction is the story of those fans. On every episode, I'll sit down with a lifelong fan of Star Trek and trace their fandom back to the very beginning. We'll talk about their favorite characters, the toys they played with, and what their favorite series is. But more importantly, we'll talk about how the show has made their life better. So join me on The Prime Direction on the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as our website at CosmicPotato.com. And if you'd like to be on the show, just send me an email at mail at CosmicPotato.com, and we'll arrange a time for you to tell me about your prime direction. Isn't it about time for somebody's favorite radio program? Coming to you from the great state of Alabama and from points located all across the U.S. eastern seaboard, it's Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. You can find us at CosmicPotato.com and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, situated in a small corner in Birmingham, Alabama, only inches from a tall glass of Diet Mountain Dew, here is your host, Sean Ray. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Keep the change, you filthy animal. Hey everybody and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. My name is Sean and sitting across the virtual table from me is a guy who just bought a whole case of high C ecto coolers. John, how are you? <laughs> it's tasty. <laughs> and also on the line with me today is Rick. Welcome back to the show, sir. Howdy, howdy. How's it going? Doing pretty good, pretty good. But um, today we're going to do uh, movies that are cult classics or movies that have a cult following. And I define a cult movie this way. You guys can add whatever definition you, you want as well. But if it wasn't really a huge success in the theater, but the movie is still popular and has a has an audience, um, comes on TV quite a bit, people have screenings of it, dress up as characters at conventions, all that kind of stuff, then that is considered to be a cult classic. You have any? You guys have anything you want to add to that? Well, I, when I was worried about having enough for this show, because when I think of cult movies, I think one leaps to mind and then a bunch that I haven't seen. And I, I went online and I Googled cult classic. And there are a ton of movies. I now have 29 movies on my list here that they consider to be cult classics yeah. that I've seen. And that's not all the ones that were listed. That's just That's just the ones that I've seen. So I think maybe... There's a broader definition, but I like your definition a lot. Yeah, and you know, and, and most of the time, I would say that a cult classic is a make or break movie, which means that people either really love it or they really hate it. There's not a whole lot of in between. You know, uh, you're either a fan of this movie or you're not a fan of it. And some of them have multiple sequels, even though they weren't successful in their original run, and that's mainly because of the success that they've gotten on video or on DVD since they came out. I, I would generally agree with your definition. I think, cause I, cause I was thinking about it too. And I'm sure the same one that leapt to my mind when you think cult class is the same one that leapt to your mind, but I've actually never seen that film. Um, I've seen bits and pieces. I've never watched it all the way through. Um, but uh, so my, I was defining it as something that, was not a box office or critical success, but the fans um, are like you know rabid, like yeah. Like you said. Or or or, just for, or for me personally, you know this movie was you know you know I remember it being very enjoyable, entertaining, and it may or may not hold up, but I think for my list. Um, 
not a not a huge success commercially or critically and critically is almost more important um and i found it entertaining and i know it's you know it's years and years later although the the way information spreads now you know it, it used to take i'd say five ten years to make a cult classic and now it's basically you know all of the particular fan base who like this particular film can get in touch with each, with each other and tell each other about it so now you can make a cult classic in a couple of years yeah yeah i, I almost wonder if if it's although i wonder if it's harder to uh have a film become a cult classic now because you know like a, a, most of the movies that i wrote down are movies that predate uh video or or definitely predate the internet right um where you would have to go to like midnight screenings and and uh you know or special showings or you know maybe somebody got the one videotape or the laser disc or something and you'd get together at somebody's house to see it or something like that yeah. and it's almost an underground hit whereas I don't think there's any such thing as underground anymore. No, not yeah. really. <laughs> well, go ahead and give us your your first pick, Rick. Well, okay, we'll we'll hit the big one. Why not uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh, I think that's the one that kind of started it all for the most. Well, maybe not. Uh, there, there's another I think that predates there, but they're fairly close. But uh, anyway, Rocky Horror. Um, I have seen it hundreds of times. Uh, John, I, I assume that's the one you were talking about. You haven't seen all of yet. Correct. Okay, uh, Sean, have you seen it? I have not. I know of it, but uh-huh. I've, I've never, I've never watched it. Okay, I'm, I'm not proud of it. I think I would probably like it. It's just one of those movies well, I never quite got around to. The thing about Rocky Horror um, is that, as a film. And this is coming from a place of love. As a movie, it kind of sucks. It did not do well when it was released. Uh, It's based on a stage play written by Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff in the film. Uh, And he wrote it. It's a musical that's uh, spoofs 1950s era science fiction films. But it puts this kind of really weird sort of uh, gender-bent, transsexual sort of... uh, uh, pastiche over the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a fun show. I've never seen the stage play. I've read the script and I've heard the music. I've never actually seen a production of it. I've come very close to doing the show a couple of times, but I've never actually been involved in it. Um, but in the early 70s, they turned it into a movie and it starred Tim Curry. And this is where Tim Curry got his start. Susan Sarandon and, and Barry Bostwick. Uh, all, all three of those people, this was their first major uh, feature film. Or pretty darn close to first, if I'm I'm, I'm not entirely positive. Yeah. Um, and it was very much a, a creature of the '70s. It was somber. It it was fun, but it was also there was this subtext they put in it of like Nazi death camps and stuff. It, it's it it's it's a very dark film. And I when I was a kid. Uh, I heard about it. I, there was a theater near our house that, that you know advertised they were running the Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnights on Saturday or Fridays and Saturday nights. And I assumed it was a horror movie. Uh, and then uh, when I turned 17, uh, I got I, I you know could now go to R-rated movies because it's an R-rated movie because they say the F word in it once. <laughs> um, you know, n- but nowadays I don't think it would have even gotten a PG-13. But uh, if you say um, that word once, it's PG-13. You say oh, okay. It twice, then, it's <laughs> yeah, PG-13 um, gives you one F-bomb, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I went to see it, and the thing about Rocky Horror is, like, my wife has only ever seen it on video, either on VHS or DVD. Um, and she likes it, but she doesn't. she doesn't get it. And we have not had a chance to go see it since we got married, so I haven't had a chance to introduce her to it. There's a whole, Rocky the Rocky Horror Picture Show is an experience. It's not just watching a movie, because when you go to see the movie, there are things you shout at the screen, 
there are lines that are set on the screen and then there's responses that the audience yells out. Yeah. There are there are times when you you bring props to the movie. You throw toast at an at a at a point. You have squirt guns uh when it's raining. Everybody has newspapers. Uh it it's it's and everybody almost everybody dresses up. Uh it's a place to let your inhibitions just fly. Um and because the nature of the show is very is very uh uh, alternative lifestyle friendly. Um, it, it's a very welcoming kind of be whoever you want as long as you're not breaking decency laws too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you could pretty much get away with it at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and so the first time I saw it when I was 17, at first I was like, will you guys shut up? I want to watch the movie. And then once I realized what was going on, I got into it. Um, and then years later, a couple of years later, when I graduated high school and I got in, uh, I, I don't even remember how I got involved with the shadow cast, but a lot of theaters have a shadow cast, which is people who act out the movie either underneath the screen or next to the screen. Or in, in the case of one theater that was in my hometown, there was a stage in front of the screen. So they were actually in front of the, you know, the screen while it was going on. Um, somehow I got involved with our shadow cast and I ended up playing the character of Rocky horror. Um, they, the, right. If you haven't seen the movie, it's kind of hard to explain. The last part of the sh- it, 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 there's a point towards the end of the film where all of the principal characters have been turned into statues by Doctor Frankenfurter, the, the the chief, the head bad guy. Um, and then he decides there's going to be a floor show. Now this is a big production number in the stage play. Uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in the movie, but it doesn't have to. Um, and what you get is you get the characters go from being statues to they come out of it and they're wearing uh, white face paint with, with you know, a, almost kabuki-esque face makeup, corsets, fishnet stockings, panties, and high heels. Um, and that's all of the characters, male and female. Uh, and because of my theater background, I was able to go from being just Rocky, just running around in a pair of little tiny gold shorts uh, I was able to run out, run up to the to the bathrooms and get into the, the corset and the fishnets and everything and get my makeup on and get back in time for the floor show, uh, which always impressed <laughs> the yeah. people I worked with. Um, Can we include a photo it, of this on this uh, when we launched this podcast? I, <laughs> okay. Fortunately, <laughs> this was long before the advent of the digital camera. <laughs> and there is no photographic evidence of this. Uh, but but I, 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 there, okay, there is one kind of amusing story that, that, that's sort of tangential to this. Uh, a few years later, I was uh, dating a young lady. And um, I'm not sure how to how to put this without it. Well, this is not entirely a family show. So if, you, <laughs> if any kids are listening, I won't use bad language, but, uh, we were, uh, we were, um, uh, ent- entertaining each other, shall we say. And <laughs> she was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good word. Canoodling. And she was wearing, uh, uh, stockings with, with gar- uh, and a garter belt. And as, as the course of the canoodling progressed, I just, reached down and undid the garter belt with one hand. Uh, and she stopped and went, wow, how did you know how to do that? <laughs> and that led to a bit of an awkward explanation. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> but that, that's the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a lot of fun. It's, it's, you know, it's definitely subversive, but in a very harmless way. Uh, it's a great way when you're young to just go out and just be anyone you want to be and blow off a lot of steam. And the movie itself is almost irrelevant to that. Yeah. Uh, so you can watch the movie on DVD and most of the DVDs have some sort of, uh, documentary about the audience participation and stuff on there. Um, I I won't say it's a terrible movie. It's just not a great movie. I don't, I'm not at all surprised that it didn't do well in the box office, but the thing about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is the experience of going to see it and being there in that crowd uh, and just and just 
leaving your inhibitions at the door and just having a great time. The Alabama Theater here in town, which is an old theater from the 20s, they have a thing every on Halloween every year where they show the film. And I've thought about going, but you know, when you've got kids, you've got other things to do on Halloween. <laughs> you know, you've got <laughs> yeah, you've got to entertain your kids. That's you one know. of the reasons I haven't been in so long. Yeah, we've you know kids. Yeah. So okay. Well, John, what's your what's your first pick? Well, um, first on my list was you know, of course, Rocky Horror. But I'm glad that Rick talked about it because as I said, I haven't actually seen it. Um, but yeah, for me, it is kind of the definition of a cult classic. Um, and I think that's probably because, you know, we said like the fan base was integral to what makes a cult classic and those fans are, you know, probably the most expressive and one of the first ones to, to really do that where they, you know, were so into the experience, they had to be a part of the movie like that. So I will say my first pick after laying out those rules, kind of doesn't follow those rules, uh, is uh, Flash Gordon from 1980. Oh, wow. I didn't even think that one. Yeah, the only one that doesn't follow, because apparently it was a hit overseas, but not a hit here. Yeah. Well, I think it still applies. A lot of things are hits overseas that... Yeah. (laughs) Hasselhoff. All right, so... um, (laughs) Yeah, so Flash Gordon... um, is based on the you know science fiction story of a guy and his girlfriend. Although I don't think they're together in the old story. I don't think they're together at the time that they get launched to this other world. Uh, planet Mungo, I think, ruled by yep. Ming the Merciless, who is bad. <laughs> so the 1980 movie version is this sci-fi technicolor glam rock beautiful fiasco <laughs> where <laughs> um and it's the all the the probably most notable factor about it um is that the songs all the songs all the music was uh, produced and performed by mega band queen yeah um which may have <laughs> which may have been why it was a bigger hit in in britain actually than it was here um, and for me, it was notable also because of, uh, uh, that was my introduction to Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Rick, a lot, often you'll talk about, you know, I can quote lines from this movie. You know, we still quote lines from this movie. I still quote lines from this movie. And I live in DC and pretty much the rest of my family is like in other cities. Um, so it is a rare occasion that anybody knows what I'm talking about. If I say, oh, what's a good one? Uh, bring me the boar worms. <laughs> uh, or, what is it? Um, one of the characters is apologizing to Dale Arden, uh, who is the main love interest. Um, because she's um, the, the character who's apologizing is not human, and she doesn't get this whole human emotion thing. And over the course of the film, she learns to get it. And she's so she apologizes for something bad that she did. And um, Dale says, "It's not your fault. That's just one of the things that makes us better than you." <laughs> Which is like one of the greatest lines ever. <laughs> but yeah, um, it is a. It it was 1980, so I was a child, and I don't think they drop any f bombs, and no. I don't think there are any actual sex scenes, but <laughs> 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 it is not a movie for children. Yeah, it's pretty violent um, because you know the metal bikini like Blair wore that everyone is that that is more controversial now. Slave labor. Yeah. Everybody is dressed like that. <laughs> like you haven't all- lived until you see Brian Blessed in a tiny little pair of panties and <laughs> big wings. Ah, uh, yes. Squadron 14? <laughs> I'm telling you, like, all the lines, great. And and it's it's one of those films that embraces its campiness. And um, it's, it's, it's a really good time, even though it's not a good movie. 
<laughs> but it knows it's not and it's earnest in that. <laughs> so it's it's just it's it's really fun to watch because all the acting is overacting and all the lines are over the top. And it, it embraces the suck. It embraces the suck. Right. <laughs> um it's 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 very very funny and it's you know it sets up for a sequel that never happens which is fine probably a good thing (laughs) (laughs) probably for the best i I shouldn't have said that now it's out there in the universe and there's going to be a flash gordon reboot 2020 or something Um, well you know flash gordon is the reason we have star wars george lucas wanted to do of what he wanted to do flash gordon and couldn't get the rights to it so he did his own wow did not know that yeah yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, so yeah, these the soundtrack is amazing. The movie is amazing in a different way, but I would uh, I would definitely recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, well, it was <laughs> it was directed by was it either it was either Dino De Laurentiis or his daughter Rafaela? Uh, I produced, forget which one. Produced, one of them produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Oh, produced by. Oh, okay. According to Wikipedia. I mean, it's visually gorgeous. It uh, really and is. Sean. Sean, remember we saw that some of the best cosplayers at that con we went to at Ming, Magic City Ming Con. Ming the Merciless, yeah, he he, he looked dead on, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome, yeah. So that that was that's that's my first pick. That's probably kind of the most, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've said all I can say. Right? Okay. Well, my first uh, pick <laughs> is Clerks. Um, the first movie made by Kevin Smith, who was he's now a well-known uh director slash podcaster but uh he actually dropped out of film school so that he could use his tuition money along with a bunch of loans that he took out on his credit card so he could make this movie and he filmed it in the actual convenience store where he worked at the time which had a video store attached to it he had to film at night when he wasn't working, you know, which is why I know at the beginning of the film when Dante puts up that sign up in the window because the window's broken, he puts a sign up in the window that says, we assure you that we are open. Um, he did that because they were going to be filming inside during at night, but the scenes were supposed to take place during the day. So he had to put that in the window so that you couldn't tell that it was night outside, you know, so... <laughs> the the day shots were the day shots were filmed outside on the weekends when Kevin wasn't working and it's probably one of the most simple movies I've ever watched you know shot in black and white and he actually saved a lot of money by buying uh unused uh, or used film stock black and white film that had like some extra footage from other films on it and then he just used what was left at the end to film his movie, you know? <laughs> so, so he's using leftover film to make his movie. Uh, there's a lot of static shots. So he, you know, he doesn't move the camera around a whole lot. Cinematically, this movie isn't different than a lot of other first time indie films, but, but Kevin Smith has a gift for writing dialogue and the dialogue is what makes this movie really good. So, you know, we talked about it on the show where it's, it's the first movie that I saw where the characters talked about movies, the way that, I talk about movies where they're coming up with all these weird scenarios and and uh, like talking about the contract workers on the Death Stars that died and they were innocent <laughs> victims, you know. And if you're a Kevin Smith fan, then you've probably already seen the movie. If you're if you're not a Kevin Smith fan, then this movie's not going to be your cup of tea, you know. He made a sequel a few years ago, and he keeps talking about making a third one, but then he keeps making all these other movies instead and saying, "Yeah, I'm going to get to Clerks Three. I'm going to get to Clerks Three, but first First, I'm going to make uh, moose jaws. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard about that, but he's making a movie that's basically jaws, but it's a moose instead of a shark. Oh no! Yeah, it's well. He did just his latest film is is his daughter and Johnny Depp's daughter fighting Nazi sausages. So yeah. why not? Yeah, he's doing he's doing a trilogy of these of these. He calls them like the the North trilogy or something like that. But the first one was tusk and then the second one was yogurt yogurt hosiers which is one you were just talking about yogurt hosiers yeah, yeah. and yeah. then the third one is moose jaws and he, that's the one he's working on now and then he says he's going to get to clerks three after that so we'll see if he actually ever makes it but 
<laughs> he also said a few years ago that he's never going to make movies again. He's just going to podcast full time, and then he started making movies again. So you, you know, you never know with Kevin what you're going to get. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Clerks is definitely one that, and you know, the second one wasn't bad, but it wasn't. They didn't have the feel of the first one. The first one being in black and white, being his first film, you know, and a lot of the people. He had people in the film that played more than one character. You know, they would show up and play a character, and they're all his buddies from his neighborhood. And and then they would come back later, and they're supposed to be a different person, you know. But there's lines from that film that I say all the time. Nobody really gets them, you know. <laughs> you know, if I'm at work. seven. Yeah, in a row. <laughs> but then, uh, but like, uh, you know, I I'm not even supposed to be here today. You know, I say that at work and people look at me like, yes, you are. You're supposed to be here every day. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's definitely my pick for a, one, a, a cult classic. So, you know, I own clerks too. Well, I own clerks also, but, um, the, we, we saw clerks too when it came out. And despite the fact that Rosario Dawson, uh, is just one of the most amazing humans ever to live. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it's pretty clear the, the the problem with Clerks two, and maybe why he's dragging his feet on Clerks three, is that uh, it, it's pretty obvious why the guys that played Randall and and Dante didn't work again after Clerks. Yeah, they um, haven't done much. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. They're just, I mean, especially dude, the dude that played Randall. I mean, you know, bless them for being in in Clerks and helping Kevin Smith out. I'm sure nobody got any money from that movie. Um, well, at least not right away, anyway. But, damn, the dude cannot act to save his life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he he's funny with those types of lines. You know, he's he's got some joke delivery and everything. But as far as actually acting, no, he can do that character oh, yeah. because that character was written for him. You know, actually, that character was written for Kevin. Kevin was supposed to play Randall, and then. I guess it finally dawned on him that it's going to be hard enough making his first film without actually having a lot of dialogue to, to deliver in it as well. So he ended up just playing silent Bob instead and then giving the part yeah. to, to Randall. But he did, I mean to, uh, I can't remember the guy's name either, but he, uh, he did rewrite a lot of it to actually fit the other guy, you know? So, and then they did the, the animated series, um, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And do you guys remember that? vaguely yeah i know of it i've never seen it yeah it wasn't bad i think i saw the first episode yeah it wasn't bad it's just it wasn't i mean it wasn't clerks because now they're having all these adventures but they couldn't really figure out what to do with it either because it wasn't really a kid show and it wasn't really an adult show yeah yeah it came on primetime on abc and it lasted maybe six episodes something like that before it got canceled and they re they rerun it on Cartoon Network every couple of years. Basically, when Kevin comes out with a new film, they'll start rerunning that. <laughs> but but it's worth checking out. There's some clips on. I don't know if you can find full episodes on YouTube, but there's some clips of it on YouTube that are pretty funny. And uh, they kind of did. If you if you ever watched the Clerks ten uh, year anniversary edition that came out on on DVD, they did a a scene that was originally cut out of the film. They put it back in, in the, in the, the, um, the, about going to the funeral and they animated it. And it's kind of that animation style that they used for the, for the series, you know, the kind of the block characters and stuff and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Rick, what's your next pick? Do you, do you you know about the, uh, the, the, the alternate ending, the the original ending? Oh yeah. Yeah. Dante was supposed to get killed. Um, yeah, yeah, that would have sucked <laughs> at the yeah. end of it, especially a comedy. You know, I could see if it hadn't have been a comedy, but when you're when it's something that you're laughing at the whole time, and then you you kill your character at the very end of it, yeah, <laughs> that would have been weird. Yeah, I've seen the I've seen the footage that they shot. They put it on the extras on the DVD, but yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's kind of weird that way. He wants to well, let's have a comedy where the main character dies at the end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh my next movie is The Hunger, which is an incredibly underrated uh vampire film from uh the oh you know what? I should look up the date on this thing. 
because it's I, I can't remember if it's late 80s or early 90s. Um, hang on just a sec. 83. 83? Okay, yep, 83. You are absolutely right. Um, it stars David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon. And it, I, there has never, I, I almost said most original. That doesn't work. <laughs> it is, it is unique in, uh, in uh, vampire films. Uh, it's based on a book by by Whitley Stryber, who uh, you may know better as the uh, author of some, you know, wacko UFO supposed nonfiction books. Yeah, he wrote he wrote Contact. They made that Jodie Foster movie out of. Yeah. No, that was that was Carl Sagan. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. I used to work in a bookstore, and they had them right next to each other. <laughs> he, <laughs> he wrote a he wrote a book that had a, co- a cover that was almost exactly like the cover to Contact. So that, that's yeah, maybe where yeah. I'm mixing it up. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I've read the book too, and the book is is fabulous as well. Although the ending is very different. Um, but the it starts off with. Uh, the first time I ever heard Bauhaus, which was uh, um, Bella Lugosi's Dead, the song Bella Lugosi's Dead. Uh, and you've got Catherine Deneuve, who, if you're not familiar with her uh, and you are heterosexual or a lesbian, um, <laughs> look her up. Trust me, look her up. <laughs> uh, she's a French actress uh, who just is like, if, 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 if sex was created as a human being, it would be her. Um, <laughs> And uh, and she and Bowie are cruising this this goth club, and they bring a couple of of uh, young you know a young couple home, and and then uh, kill them and drink their blood. Um, and what happens is that we find out that Deneuve is the actual vampire, and Bowie is someone that she turned into a vampire back in the in the seventeen hundreds. But he, and he's been eternally young, and then all of a sudden he's starting to age. And he's starting to age very fast. And so she uh, tracks down Susan Sarandon, who is a scientist who's researching aging. And uh, they're trying to, she's trying to figure out if Susan Sarandon has found any way to reverse aging before David Bowie. We think he's going to die. But what happens is that she creates these companions for herself. And they stay young for a couple of hundred years. And then they rapidly age to being just basically living skeletons but they don't die they can't die and then she puts them in coffins and puts them in the attic and she's got like dozens of them up there um and then she uh latches on to susan sarandon uh and turns her into a, a vampire or does she um and it's it's a fabulous vampire movie it's got an amazing atmosphere uh there are certain scenes in there that on my old VHS copy were worn out <laughs> because they got rewound and played back over and over again. Um, have either of y'all seen it? No, I haven't. I, I might have seen it years and years and years ago, but I don't remember anything about it. Oh, okay. Um, if you like vampire movies uh, and you're not into like Twilight and that crap, um, check out The Hunger. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Okay. All right. John, what's your next pick? Um, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go with, uh, House from 1986, starring, uh, William Catt from The Greatest American Hero. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Richard Mull, uh, who was both on Nightboat. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, have, have either of you seen this movie? No, no, but I know both movie? those actors. <laughs> I, I only remember the poster of the, the disembodied hand ringing the doorbell. Yeah, that is correct. All right, so... Richard Mole made some... Yeah, he he made some... He was some weird characters in some films back in the day, I remember. Well, this was... Um, I'm not sure what you expect his role to be, I guess, when you start the film, but uh, yeah. I, you'll be surprised by the end. Um, but yeah, it was, it was good. It was in 96, 1986. And it was one of the, uh, you know, part of the spate of um, comedy horror movies, or I guess I should say horror movies with comedic edge that were all the rage in the eighties. And, um, this one was actually really good. So this guy moves into a house and turns out the house is haunted. And um, 
it's haunted in such a way that um, not that ghosts appear, but it kind of pulls him um, back and forth into this alternate dimension. Um, and you find out why later, and it turns out it's specific to him, not specific to the house. Um, but yeah. it was, um, you know, it, it was one of those, I don't think I'd ever really heard of it before it came on HBO. And then it came on HBO, you know, twice a day for three years. <laughs> yeah, that was the norm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it was um, uh, it was it was one of those films that was surprisingly good um, and entertaining. I think the, they don't quite get the right mix of horror and comedy in that the comedy is not smart; it's just silly. Yeah, which kind of annoys me, but. Um, it, I can over well. I don't overlook it, but it doesn't lose too many points for it because um, overall, it ends up it's, it's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty good movie. So, um, and I'm and as you know, I, I I wouldn't consider myself a horror movie fan, although I do watch a fair amount of horror. I watch fun horror, yeah, like grotesque, disturbing horror. Um, and this this would this fits well in there. So, yeah, house. Starring the greatest American hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is about the... Yeah, which is basically the only thing that he's really known for outside of, you know, people that really like cult classics and stuff. Pretty uh, much. Yeah. And I, I think there was a sequel or two, but it's, you know, meh. You know how these horror movie sequels go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, um, my next pick is... I have to admit, I, I didn't. I had never heard of this movie until about a month and a half ago. The name of the movie is Time Quest, and I had uh, a while back. I had uh, Chris and Skip from the Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three podcast on this show. This is a movie that they actually talked about on their podcast, and I went and watched it, and I ended up really liking it. And going back and doing a little research, it is a cult classic, even though it was made in like two thousand three, two thousand four, something like that. The movie starts on the day of the Kennedy assassination, and it stars a lot of people that I've never heard of. <laughs> and judging by IMDb, they haven't done a whole lot since. But it did have Ralph Waite from the Waltons, and um, and it had uh, Bruce Campbell showed up for a couple of scenes, uh, as he normally does, you know. But <laughs> but the premise is this: okay, so a time traveler shows up on the day of the assassination. And he tells JFK, "Don't get in the motorcade," and persuades him, and tells Jack, and or he persuades uh, JFK and Jackie that he's telling the truth, and tells them that once the timeline changes, that he'll cease to exist, and that you know it kind of shows the next or an idea of what the next forty years would have been like if JFK had not been killed. A um, couple of highlights of what the filmmaker says could have happened. The U.S. and Russia landed on the moon as a joint effort and kind of kept the Cold War from happening. The U.S. never entered the Vietnam War. Robert Kennedy became president later on. His vice president was Martin Luther King. And uh, Kennedy passed away in the 80s, and his body was sent to the human colony on the moon and buried there. You know, so it's definitely a, definitely a B-movie, but one of the things that I liked about it was at the very beginning there's scenes that are in black and white and there's scenes that are in color. And you kind of realize that the black and white scenes are the way that history actually happened. And then when it goes to color, these are things that are changing. You know, these are things that the time traveler has been involved with. So after a few minutes, the entire film is in color, you know, so that was kind of a, kind of a cool, a cool thing there. But, uh, yeah, it's called time quest and I recommend it. You know, I, I, when I sat down to watch it, I thought it was going to be awful, <laughs> but uh, but I went ahead and, and started watching it, and I and I really ended up enjoying it. So, all right, Rick, what's your next pick? Uh, I'm going to go back to 1968 uh, to a film that is, le you know, I didn't it it, it sorry, <laughs> it is legitimately a cult classic. Uh, I know that uh, over in Tampa, especially around Halloween time, it gets played a lot. Uh, uh, again, midnight showings with, with folks gathering and stuff. Uh, and it is the original Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by George Romero. 
Um, and I only just saw this movie for the first time because uh, I am I am a a, a real uh, weenie when it comes to horror films, <laughs> and and so I generally don't watch horror films. Uh, but there's another podcast uh, that I uh, listen to <laughs> called The Little Pot of Horrors, and and they they take great pleasure in tormenting me <laughs> with <laughs> making me watch horror films, and then I go on and and give reports about it. And uh, they didn't assign me to watch Night of the Living Dead. I just decided to. We had a, we have a copy of it here in the house, although it's public domain, so you can watch it. Oh yeah. Anywhere. It is actually a remarkable movie. It, it's very similar to Clerks, not in content, of course, but <laughs> in that uh, it was you know an independent film. George Romero did this for you know very little money, uh, but. Unlike Clerks, the performances are all <laughs> pretty fantastic in Clerk in uh, in Night of the Living Dead. Um, the the premise is that a uh, a satellite has crashed and brought with it some sort of virus that is reanimating dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and these dead bodies are shambling around and uh, basically eating any living thing they come in contact with. So while in, in, you know, eventually the zombie genre becomes the zombies are only eating people's brains. Um, in Night of the Living Dead, you see the zombies attacking people. You see them attacking animals. There's one zombie that grabs a, like a bug off a tree and eats it. Um, and it's also nowhere near as gruesome uh, as in, uh, in later incarnations. Uh, there's very little blood. Um, any any scene that there is like one scene of zombies eating somebody, but that somebody died, they didn't kill him. Uh, right. That he got killed, and then you just see them kind of running around with bits and pieces of him. Um, it's it's a much more subtle film than you would expect, uh, and it's again, you know, and you hear this all the time. I hear this about Walk the Walking Dead all the time. It's not about the zombies. It's about how the people are dealing with the zombies. You know that is pretty much what night of the living dead is about. Um, the, the main story is a bunch of people, uh, trapped in this one house surrounded by the, and they don't even call them zombies. They call them ghouls. Right. In, in the original, uh, it's, it's a really well done movie. Um, and I, despite it being a cult classic, I think that it's gotten kind of buried underneath the weight of its sequels. Uh, and underneath the you know the weight of the genre that it spawned, but I think if you want to watch a smart, subtle, uh, well done horror film that's much more you know tension than just in your face guts, the original Night of the Living Dead is a classic for a reason. I think. Yeah, and I I, I like Night of the Living Dead. I like Night of the Living Dead, and I like Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead has a pretty big cult following as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Now Romero kind of he kept making the film. He made a lot more after that. He's he's up to six or seven now. But after that, it kind of drops off. I think you know I've seen them all. Yeah. But um, but those two movies <laughs> are de- and especially that one because being in black and white, I, something about it being in black and white makes it creepier. And um, yeah, and oh, the yeah. zombies they they don't just attack and eat. You know, some of them even use tools. There's a um. There's a scene where the little girl yeah. turns into a zombie, and they just show her shadow, and she's stabbing her parents with a, a like a trowel, a garden yeah, trowel so. or something, mm-hmm. you know. So she's not just attacking and 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 biting; she's actually physically murdering them, you know. So that's a little different than what you see in a lot of the modern uh, zombie films. And I think that uh, Romero kind of invented the way that they do zombie movies now with the slow and the shambling zombies and, mm-hmm. and yeah. all that. Um, well, you know what? I watched the, I watched Dawn of the dead, uh, back in 1982. I was a freshman at the university of Florida and a friend of mine took me to see a midnight showing of Dawn of the dead. And then at two o'clock in the morning, I had to ride my bike back through <laughs> the deserted streets of Gainesville, Florida that was not a ple- that wasn't a pleasant ride at yeah. all. but um last year as a result of of uh of the little pot of horrors i watched the remake of dawn of the dead and it had the fast moving zombies yeah 
And you know what? I, I find that the slow shambling zombies are scarier. Yeah, me too. The fast-moving zombies are just angry people, and I don't find them scary at all. Right. Yeah. When I when I chase my children, that's how I chase them. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, not like when I'm chasing, like not like when I'm like they they're in trouble, but like yeah, no, like, no. Like we're playing tag, you know. I, I always do the the the, the slow shambling uh-huh. um, monster <laughs> lazy chaser because you know they're running all around, they're using up their energy, and you know every one of my steps is like four of theirs. I know where they're going. <laughs> yeah. I'll hide on occasion. I'll pop up, and uh, yeah, like that. Like, <laughs> and that that kind of monster is like I, I pattern my behavior because it, yeah, it's I, I do this. Because you think that you're safe because he's slow, but okay, wait, I lost him for a second, and boom, there he is behind the tree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Dawn of the Dead. I do the same thing with my little girl. Right. Go ahead, John. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead will make you, uh, when you go to the mall, you'll look around. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I could, I could survive here. I could do that. I could go <laughs> but I've never, been, I've never been to a shopping mall that had a gun store in it, though. You know, hopefully they wouldn't put yeah. a gun store in the middle of a shopping mall. But, like... A lot of people, like I said, uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead has a cult following of its own. A lot of people actually still go to the shopping mall that they filmed it in just to have their picture taken at certain locations around <laughs> the parking lot and, and inside the mall. And I, Even though it looks completely different inside now than it did you know, 30 years ago when they made the movie or 40 years ago, whenever yeah. it was. But, um, but yeah. Okay, John, what was your next pick? Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to double up because I couldn't really decide between these two but uh, they are both John Carpenter films and he could pretty much you know we could really the just patron do a, a saint whole... of the cult film exactly <laughs> exactly he could, he could we could do a whole show just for him um, but I uh, uh, I'm gonna say Big Trouble in Little China slash oh yeah slash They Live from uh, 88 oh um, oh, shit, they li- oh, sorry. I mean, They Live was uh, was Carpenter? Yeah, yeah. I oh, didn't realize that. I came here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Exactly. <laughs> the genius that brought us that line. Yeah. Um, uh, Rowdy and- Roddy Piper and Mick Fleetwood in the same movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't remember it, but... Um, um, it'll it'll come to me later. Kurt Russell? But, no, no. Well, um, no. Oh, and, okay. and they live the the guy who's like his best friend that he has the twenty minute fight scene with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't remember the actor's name, but he's he's like a very popular, famous actor now, and I can't remember his name. But yeah, so uh, Big Trouble in Little China and They Live both have. And this is kind of one of Carpenter's trademarks, which is kind of the, the surly badass hero, anti-hero hero. And um, Big Trouble in Little China, he's really, he just wants his truck back. That's <laughs> 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 like his whole motivation. Yes, they kidnapped a girl. And yes, he's an evil sorcerer who's about to rule the world, blah, blah, blah. But mainly, I want my truck back. And so he teams up with his best friend whose girl has been taken uh, because the same guy who took the girl took the truck and they go, <laughs> they go on this, on this adventure through uh, uh, little China, i.e. Chinatown in uh, New York through all the, uh, and they battle ancient demons and wizards. And uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's another one of those, uh, you know, glorious technicolor masterpieces. Um, and, the special effects are bad by today's standards, but they were average, I would say, by the time when they, when it came out. Um, and so it's 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 a nice mix of like Flash Gordon intentionally really didn't take itself seriously, um, and it just ran with it. Big Trouble in Little China, it doesn't take itself seriously either. <laughs> it also runs with it. But it's also more sincere in some ways, if that makes sense. Like the the uh, uh, Jack Burton is Kurt Russell's character. He's the he's the main star. Um, he's pretty much an a hole. He doesn't care. 
you know, he's 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 got his love interest, Kim Cattrall. Um but the the other characters have I can't even say some depth. You know what? No, it's just fun. I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make it more than it is, and I really shouldn't. It's just fun. Same with They Live. Well, they Live. The, uh, the thing, well, the thing about Big Trouble is that it's all played straight. It's played yeah, very they, seriously, and the, the comedy what, comes from the situations. I think that's what I mean. Like, they, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so, uh, and They Live. Um, nice, actually, subversive social commentary. Um mixed in the sci-fi horror but uh the world has been taken over by aliens but you didn't know it you didn't notice because they look like humans and all of the messages that they send you to basically be consumers and sheep and not think too much um are all subliminal Unless you have these special Rowdy Roddy Piper sunglasses, right? <laughs> that lets you see through their uh, veil of inequity and uh, see the world as it really is, and the aliens as they truly are. Um, and again, he's a guy who really doesn't, you know, he's he's trying to save the world, but it's not like he's a hero. He's trying to save the world because, well. You know, I should probably save the world, and I'm the only one. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the only guy who can see it. It's like if I got the sunglasses. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not a firefighter. I'm not. <laughs> I don't consider myself an especially heroic person. But if I'm the only person who can save the world, I'd probably try to save the world. That's 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 pretty much where he is. Like, well, I do hate those aliens, so I guess I got to save the world. Um, and yes, as you as you. Uh, as you so helpfully pointed out, I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. This, <laughs> yeah. this is the film that that came from. Yep. That line has been ripped off so many times <laughs> in, other right. in other films, but yeah. And, you know, like you said, John Carpenter, we like, you know, cult classic after cult classic, in part because he usually, he may or may not get critical success, not really, but um, he almost never he almost never gets box office success. <laughs> even even with the films like the thing is also uh, that that was like an honorable mention for me um and that was not a hit and the critics kind of didn't like it either actually when it first came out i mean now it's you know it's all it's genius so it's so good so it, it's definitely a classic cult or otherwise but you know at the time people were like that ending sucks <laughs> so wait, who was it? So was it him? Wait, who was it? <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you I, know I, what? I, go ahead. There, there's a, a, a. I saw an article the other day. I'm not a comic book person at all, but this year is the 30th anniversary of Big Trouble in Little China, mm-hmm. and there is a comic book company that is putting <laughs> putting out a comic that is Jack Burton. Meets Snake Plissken. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> now, if you know who don't know who Snake Plissken is, folks, he's the character Kurt Russell plays in Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. And the 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 premise is that Jack Burton somehow falls into a time vortex and comes out in the Escape to New, Escape from New York future, and so he has to team up with Snake Plissken to do whatever it is they have to do. I didn't read past that. I was just like, this is freaking awesome. <laughs> I would I would read that comic. I'd like to see him yeah, make the too. movie, yeah. yeah. I saw, I, I watched both Escape From films and, you know, Escape From L.A. got surprisingly, not surprisingly, uh, was not, didn't get a great review. Um, but neither yeah, did New York, I think. But I, it. I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. It was okay, but yeah. It wasn't as good as the first, true. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it, it's there's only so far you can go with the, you know, anti-hero badass before, yeah. you know, before you kind of run out of stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> people, people for him to hit. 
and I and I think that was probably the biggest failing of uh, Escape from L.A. Um, but yeah, I like Bruce Campbell's cameo in it. Bruce Campbell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bruce Campbell has a cameo in everything. He does. <laughs> yeah. He's, 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 yeah. Yeah. The other patron saint of the indie cult classic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing about about Jack Burton in in that I loved in Big Trouble was that he was thoroughly incompetent, but had no idea that he was. <laughs> That's true. He was, he, but he but he was he was brave, and he was loyal. Right. He, was, he wasn't smart. Yeah. Or especially <laughs> strong or fast or skilled. So the message is anyone can be a hero, kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and, and he really loved that truck. <laughs> he just wanted it back. Yeah. Yeah, just give him a truck. <laughs> he, really, he just wanted his truck. <laughs> okay, well, my, uh, my last pick is going to be Highlander. So this is a this is a movie that fits into so many categories that it's really hard to describe because it's an action movie, it's a sci-fi, it's a fantasy, it's so completely 80s that it's not funny. <laughs> but uh people either love this movie or they hate it. You know, you don't have a, a lot of people to say, "Yeah, you know, that movie's okay." You know. <laughs> Christopher Lambert, which, you know, for years I called him Christopher Lambert until I heard somebody say his name. <laughs> but uh, I, I called him that until about two seconds ago. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Christopher Lambert plays uh, Connor McLeod. He's in Immortal, and the film also starred Sean Connery. There's no in in, in this. <laughs> I love that's the synopsis. Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> it also starred Sean Connery, but but there's in this film they don't really make an explanation as to where the immortals come from. They just exist. They're hunting down each other because as they say, in the end, there can be only one. And when they find each other, they either form an alliance or they fight to the death. So it's kind of like a reality show. (laughs) You (laughs) You either have an alliance or you fight, you know, so you cut off the immortals head, you absorb their power through the quickening and most of the story is told in flashbacks, you know, so you can kind of find out where he came from. Uh, that part of the movie is actually more interesting than the actually actual story that's happening in the present. True. Um, they made a they made a second one, and I wrote in my uh, notes that it almost ruined. Yeah, <laughs> they I wrote made a few. They, I think they did three or four. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there I mean, four movies total. Yeah. The second one, I wrote in my notes that it almost ruined the franchise, but it actually did ruin the franchise up to a point <laughs> because it, it tried to explain their origins and their origins didn't need to be explained. You know, that was what ruined it. So they said that they were from another dimension. And then they took away the fact that Connor won the prize in the first film right. by bringing immortals back. And, and then they had a TV show. The TV show wasn't bad. Um, no, it wasn't. Yeah, the, I okay, remember the other Highlander. Yeah, I remember enjoying that, and they played around with the original story. They added elements, like they added the Watchers, and it wasn't about Connor. It was about Duncan McLeod, and then he was played by Adrian Paul. So they did three movies with Connor, and then uh, the third one was was the Final Dimension. It had Mario Van Peebles in it, and then they made a fourth movie where it was kind of the the film and the TV show kind of mixed together. That was supposed to wrap up everything. And you said four. They actually made five movies, but one of them was made for the Sci-Fi Channel. And it was after oh, the after okay. the series went off the air. They did a t- they did a TV movie, and it was called Highlander. I think it was called The Prize or something like that. It didn't have C- Connor McCloud in it. It was just Duncan and other characters from the show, and it was really bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you thought if you thought the second one was bad, the 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 TV one was even worse. It was it was horrible. But but uh but yeah, Highlander. If we ever do a show of eighties, seventies, or eighties films that that could do okay as a making a reboot or a remake or something, I think Highlander would would be in that list. I think that, that there's enough there that they could make a a pretty decent uh, reboot with. And they talked about it for a I while. Think there's been rumors about that every now and then, yeah. And it just it just never happens. They said for a while that they were uh, that um, Ryan Reynolds was in talks to play Connor McLeod. 
in a in a remake, and it never happened. They also made a um, made an animated series of Highlander that I've never seen, but I've heard about, and it takes place in the future. And I have to look that up. I, I should have looked that up was, when I was doing my. There was also a spinoff. Was it the Raven? Yeah, about the. It was, it was another. Um, she was. She yeah, was that didn't portal. go anywhere though. Yeah, yeah, she was a character on the TV show that they tried to spin off into her own series, and yeah, it lasted maybe one season, and then and then they brought her back to the <laughs> to the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> well, my issue. Was I the... never really watched the TV show, but I had a friend, uh, a lot of friends who were big into it. Uh, you know. A, uh, the, uh, the Highlander TV show was was very similar to the Beauty and the Beast TV show, in right. that a lot of my female friends were absolutely gaga over Adrian Paul, and so whether yeah. the show was good or not didn't matter. Um, but it, it was all right. It was, yeah, you know, I watched TV... a few episodes of it. I love the character Mythos, uh, so it was you know, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, the TV show had a lot um, going for it in that there's so much that you can do with the property because when you're talking about a race of immortals, then your flashbacks could be in any time period over the last four or 500 years, however old you made your character. I think, uh, Duncan was supposed to be 400 years old. So, and, and it was pretty much every week you had a different immortal bad guy that was coming and attacking, you know, and then he had a lot going on. He had the immortals that were his friends that were around him, you know, that you could deal with as well. So the the great thing about Highlander, aside from from the the wonderful fact that you had a Scotsman playing a Spaniard pretending <laughs> to be an Egyptian, or was it the other way around? <laughs> but anyway, um, is it gave us Clancy Brown? Yeah, yeah, the Kurgan. Yeah, yeah. My biggest annoyance with uh, the uh, the Highlander films, um, yes, Kurgan was a great villain, and then they just basically kind of remolded him for like all the other. I'm like, why? Yeah. As as yeah. As, as the series has shown us, um, you know, there's there's a there's a deep breath of stories you could tell. Why keep sending the same big beefy, you know, cyberpunk jerk? <laughs> As your main villain every time, I'm like, there's, I, I just, it seems so lazy to me. And here's what I learned from Highlander: once I tell a woman who I am and where I'm from, she will sleep with me. <laughs> <laughs> but first, because, you have to let her stab. Yeah, yeah. well, it's fair. It's fair. Totally fair. Well, there's a scene in the 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 last theatrical movie which I can't remember what the subtitle of. It was the one that had Connor and Duncan in it. Mm-hmm. There was a scene Islander, in that... Highlander, the crap thing. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was a scene in that movie that that I still remember. I don't remember a lot about the movie, but I do remember the scene where uh, Duncan gets married and his wife is immortal, but she doesn't know it because she hasn't died. And I don't know why he didn't just tell her, hey, you're immortal or whatever, but he kills he her. He you kills don't know until you die, right? Oh, wait. He knew? He knew because, you know, when you're around another immortal, he you can sense, sense it, you know. So he kills her. <laughs> so she thinks he's just murdering her. <laughs> and then, you know, she wakes back up and then she's immortal. But, yeah, I thought that was like, you know, maybe maybe you could have sat down for a cup of coffee and had an explanation as to why I'm about to stab you with this or something. Yeah. Plus, but, technically, well, that's that's something that's, that I, that's something the TV show set up. Sorry. Go ahead. Maybe they'll do us part. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And he I'm kills sorry. her. She can leave. She can leave at that point. Yeah. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, that, that was something the TV show established that wasn't in the movies was that the, the immortals had to be killed once to become immortal or something like that. Uh, it, I mean, it happened to Connor in Highlander, but they, you know, they, they, they sort of changed the myth, the mythology a bit in the TV show. Um, something about being, being killed, uh, kind of locked you into where you were or something like that. Yeah. So you didn't want it to happen too too young, but you also don't want it to happen too old because you don't want to yeah. be, 75 years old for eternity you know you want to be in your prime or whatever you know so they did that the the character of richie in 
was it Richie or Ricky? R- Richie, I think, in the TV Richie. show. Yeah, he was that nobody liked. Yeah, he didn't know that he was immortal until the end of season one, and he got shot, and and then he wakes back up, and then they do the whole joke where you know Richie pretty much died in every season, <laughs> but he would uh he would get shot. And somebody would come to his side, and he would he would just look at him and say, "Hold on, I'll be right back." And then he he die. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, he's up and he's fine. You know? <laughs> I, I want to tell you one one quick Highlander story. That's my my favorite. Uh, you know, I used to do uh, medieval reenactment, which involved uh, uh, building real armor and making wooden swords, and it's it's a full contact martial art. Uh, you know, you beat the living crap out of each other. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It hurts a lot too. Um, but the one, the, uh, I only ever won one tournament. <clears throat> uh, well, that's not true. I won two, but the, the, this one tournament I won, uh, the, the guy I ended up facing a dude by the name, uh, by the name of Frit, he and I were so evenly matched. The, the final battle of any, of any tournament is usually two out of three. And this is in South Florida. So this was down in Fort Lauderdale in probably August. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a million degrees. We're both wearing 60 to 100 pounds of armor. And we're trying to beat each other. And we'd gone two fights. I beat him. He beat me. We're on the third fight. Winner of this fight wins the tournament. And I had taken his leg, so he was on his knees. But I couldn't get through his defenses. I couldn't get past his shield. He couldn't get past mine. We're both about to either pass out or puke or both. And from somewhere deep inside of me, I just, I was like, I'd had enough. And I just growled, there can be only one. And I sweeped his shield away and clocked him right in the middle of his helmet. And it was the great, I should have just dropped my weapons at that point and never fought again. Because it was the greatest moment of my fighting career. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, end it. That's yeah over. that that that's gonna end the show. <laughs> I had some I had some other things that I was gonna bring up, but you know I wanted to talk about Reservoir Dogs and Napoleon Dynamite and all that. But we'll save we'll save all that for another show. But okay, so that's gonna do it for all of us here on the uh, cult classic episode of Cosmic Potato. The topic has room to uh, to be visited again, so we'll probably do this again in the future. But if you have a cult movie that you'd like to bring up. You know, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear about them. And you can email the show at mail at CosmicPotato.com. Don't forget to visit the website at CosmicPotato.com. You can find the show everywhere that podcasts are available, including Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. Remember to leave us a review wherever you find us so that you'll help more people find the show. And Rick, as always, pleasure to have you on, on board. Thank you, sir. I had a blast. And John... Go catch some Pokemon. Don't tell me what to do. (laughs) All right. But yes, yes, I will. All right, and take care, everybody. That's a wrap.